Welcome to the Global Connection, a Tel Aviv University podcast. Journey with us as we discover how TAU's academic community and friends are engaging with and helping to shape this ever-changing world. Hi everyone, welcome to the Global Connection. I'm Maria Lul, an international student here at Tel Aviv University in the Security and Diplomacy MA program and a member of the student-led movement Israel War Story. Today I'm with Brandon Friedman, who is the Director of Research at the Moshe Dayan Center and who is launching a new summer program at Tel Aviv University called the Regional Politics of the Middle East from the 2010 to 2011 uprisings to the October 7 war. Welcome Brandon. Thank you for having me Maria. So can you tell us a little bit about your own career and how you came to focus on the Middle East politics? Sure. First, I'd like to say that I'm a graduate of the TAU International um, Master's Program in Middle Eastern History. Um, nearly 20 years ago, um, I came to Israel to do the program, and I've been here ever since. Uh, I think from a personal perspective, my interest in Middle Eastern politics uh, was in part a product of uh, my background. My uh, mother is Israeli, my father is American. Um, and I think my um, desire to understand more about the forces that led uh, to the 9-11 uh, terrorist attacks, which for me were, uh, uh, you could say, a bit of a personal wake-up call in terms of uh, the forces brewing in the region. Um, and I think since then, uh, what I've tried to do is immerse myself in the language, culture, and history of the region, try to understand it from the inside out, um, and I think that uh, Tel Aviv University and its uh, Middle Eastern Studies uh, uh, program and credentials have provided me with the tools to do it. And I've really uh, been at Tel Aviv University ever since. Okay. So for many people, it is impossible to separate the atrocities of what happened on October 7th from the wider politics of the Middle East. Why do you feel it is important to understand what happened on October 7th in this wider context? Well, I think it's important to understand that there were um, huge changes um, happening in the region on the eve of uh, October 7th. Um, there was a almost a two-year process of regional de-escalation um, and normalization happening across the region, not just with respect to Israel. Uh, and I think in Israel there was a sense that Israel was becoming uh, better integrated into the region. And this is a far longer story, or a story with a, a far longer tale if we go, take it back to the um, Arab Spring uprisings, which introduced a great deal of instability into the region um, and followed nearly with a decade of, of civil war uh, and conflict in the region. In, starting in 2020, uh, we saw abrupt switch. And I think that um, with October 7th, unfortunately, we've seen a return to conflict uh, and the cards in the region being reshuffled. And, and we can talk more about that as we go along here. Okay. Now, would you say there are wider regional forces that contributed to the occurrence of October 7th? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, on, on one hand, I think with October 7th, you had Hamas launch a brutal and barbaric attack on Israel, uh, into Israel's communities. We see, we saw the gratuitous slaughter um, and, and brutal um, uh, treatment of Hamas towards Israeli citizens on October 7th, which I, I think reflects a little bit about uh, Hamas's ideology and worldview. Um, but more broadly, I think what we see in the region was um, Hamas's partner, Iran, 
who felt deeply uncomfortable with an emerging um, uh, regional security architecture that was being driven by the American effort to normalize relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. And I think uh, Iran felt threatened by the potential for the U.S. to create this kind of new uh, security mechanism in the region. Uh, and, and so I think Iran's interests and Hamas's interests dovetailed uh, in terms of October 7th. Hamas felt that uh, the Israeli-Saudi normalization potentially would marginalize uh, Hamas within the Palestinian sphere. It would marginalize the Palestinian uh, national movement. Um, and I think that uh, Hamas's uh, attack was in part a response to the um, the trend towards Israeli-Saudi uh, uh, normalization. Now, many people call the current war the Israel-Hamas war, mm -hmm. but you call it the October 7 war. Mm -hmm. Is there a reason for this difference? Yeah, I think it's important to understand. A lot of people have referred to it with a variety of different names, the Gaza war. And I think the October, I, I, I like the October 7 name because I think it keeps the focus on the fact that Hamas was the aggressor on October 7th. And we need to remember that. I think particularly in the international media, there's a tendency to frame this as a war on Gaza. Uh, rather than a war on Israel. And October 7th, I think, is, a, is an important reminder that it was Israel that was attacked on October 7th. It was Hamas that uh, broke through uh, uh, the perimeter barrier on Gaza and, and launched br uh, brutal uh, massacres on civilian communities um, in the Western Negev. So I think, uh, to me, the October 7th name is important because it's a reminder to everyone that this was a war of aggression by Hamas on Israel. Now, what would you say are some of the wider political forces in the Middle East region that have contributed to how the October 7 war is being fought? Again, <clears throat> to me, the, the story of October 7th, in part, is a story about um, the massive changes that the region has gone through as a result of the corona coronavirus pandemic, the Ukraine war, and probably most importantly, a decade-long process of the U.S. trying to redefine its role in the Middle East, um, beginning with uh, the Arab Spring uprisings and the U.S. withdrawal from Iraq in 2011, we see an effort for the U.S. to take a step back from the region, redefine its engagement. And as a result, I think um, this has uh, prompted uh, new reactions from, uh, from all of the players in the region. If the U.S. is not going to be the um, regional order provider, um, then I think other actors have tried to step forward and, and fill the vacuum. Um, I think people have overstated the, the sense that the U.S. is leaving the region, disengaging or withdrawing. I think the U.S. is simply trying to redefine the region to take into account its greater priorities as it sees it uh, with respect to China in the East and uh, increasingly since the Russian invasion of Crimea in 2014 and the Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2022, the importance of Europe. And so the U.S. priorities are now elsewhere. Um, and as a result, I think the region has tried to take more responsibility for itself. And I think that's part of what was driving this de-escalation and normalization. Um, however, uh, Iran felt that perhaps um, the way that the U.S. was seeking to influence and guide this new uh, process of de-escalation and normalization was working against its interests. And so what we've seen, I think, um, with respect to October 7th is an attempt by Iran 
um, to reshape the region in a way it would like to it would like to see. And I think what it would like to see is a complete U.S. withdrawal from the region. Do you think that um, uh, the more instability there is in Iran, the more they will focus on the region outside? I think, um, and, and let's take a step back here. Um, if I had to describe the last 10 years in the Middle East, I would describe Iran as the big winner. Uh, and part of the reason I would describe Iran as a big winner is that we've seen such massive conflict and instability throughout the Arab world. The Arab Spring uprisings were followed by civil wars in Libya, in Yemen, and perhaps uh, the largest and most devastating, the, Syri the Syrian civil war. Um, and in each case, Iran has been able to successfully use the civil war to its advantage. Um, and that's not even referring to the Islamic State takeover in Iraq and Syria, which initially threatened Iran's influence in Iraq and Syria. But Iran managed to turn that to its advantage, too, uh, to a certain extent. Um, Iranian interests uh, uh, matched American interests in Iraq, um, and uh, they managed to drive the Islamic State out of Iraq and Syria between 2014 and 2017. But the inherent or overall weakness of the Arab world over the last decade has allowed Iran to increase uh, its influence in um, Arab states across the region. Um, it has partners now in Lebanon, in Syria, in Iraq, in Yemen, and of course in Gaza, and, and, and people are fearful of its influence growing in the West Bank. Um, and for Israel, that means Israel feels increasingly encircled by uh, Iranian partners. And so when I look back at the last decade, I, I see a decade in which the Arab world has been engulfed in, uh, in debilitating conflict, and Iran has managed to exploit that. Now, regarding this new summer program, you begin the program with the 2010 to 2011 Arab uprisings and end with the October 7 war. Can you talk about why you decided to focus the program on approximately the past decade? Sure. I think uh, the chief reason is that uh, the Arab uprisings, which are referred to as the Arab Spring, which is perhaps a, a gross um, misnaming of the Arab Spring in hindsight, at the time it seemed like there was this p massive potential for um, a uh, massive change in the politics in the region, and that didn't really happen. Um, but these uprisings, which began in Tunisia, spread to uh, Egypt principally, um, and then also to Yemen, Bahrain, Syria, uh, and Libya, um, it created massive instability throughout the Arab world. Um, to such an extent, by the way, and, and, and this is really important to keep in mind, that I think in the Palestinian sphere, there was a, a concern that, yes, um, uh, things aren't going the way we want them to go in terms of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but relative to how things are in Libya, uh, Yemen, and Syria, perhaps we don't have it so bad. Uh, and so, I, and it also led, um, paradoxically, to the marginalization of the Israeli-Palestinian issue. With these major conflicts erupting in Libya, in Syria, in Yemen, and, uh, and with the Islamic State in uh, Iraq and Syria, which also influenced and destabilized Lebanon, um, all of a sudden the Israeli-Palestinian issue, which been, had been the focus of, Israel, of Middle Eastern politics for decades, had, was being deprioritized in some respects um, and marginalized. And so I think in order to understand um, 
October 7th, it's really important to understand the, uh, I, I would say, unintentional marginalization of the Israeli-Palestinian issue over the past decade. Now, can you elaborate on the significance of the Arab uprisings for the Middle East? Sure. Um, I, I think I've alluded to it, um, but I think that this, the, the key effects of the Arab Spring uprisings was that it spread massive um, instability, uh, political instability across the region, and led to what I would say is a competition to capture the state. In Libya, we see uh, we see continued instability in Libyans as a result of the civil war. Since 2014, there have been two separate governments there. Um, and so it, what we see is forces fighting to win the state uh, because the Middle East doesn't really have a tradition of pluralistic democratic politics. It's sort of a winner-takes-all kind of thing. And so when uh, you had the Gaddafi regime overflown, all of a sudden you have these forces fighting to win the state. And you had a similar, I, I think, a similar kind of effect in Syria and in Yemen. Um, in Bahrain, the story was a, a little bit different. In Egypt, um, you could say there was a similar type of process. Uh, after uh, Mubarak was overthrown, you saw a brief uh, uh, control of the government by the military. It was replaced by a Muslim Brotherhood government who tried to completely change the nature of the state. And then there was a military coup d'etat as a backlash in the summer of 2013. And since basically 2013, uh, Egypt's been ruled um, by, by a uh, government that comes from the military and represents principally military interests. Um, and so I think that what you've seen with the Arab Spring uprisings is a, a massive effort, in a massive instability in the Middle East and an effort to capture the state. Um, and so the, the Arab world has been fundamentally weakened over the last decade. Uh, and so I think it's important to understand the political changes in the region through the prism of the shock waves that the Arab Spring sent through the, through the region. Now, you've alluded to this, but in the past 10 years, how has Iran's regional influence shaped the whole politics of the Middle East? Sure. I think initially, Iran felt threatened by the Arab Spring uprisings because the Islamic Republic of Iran, um, despite having a system uh, with elections, um, is not a free and open government. And, um, and I think when it saw these popular uprisings, that at the time seemed like they were going to uh, usher in a new period of um, democratic uh, governance in the region in a way that might marginalize an Islamic Republic, Iran felt threatened. Um, and so Iran quickly tried to influence the trajectory of movements in the region, in the areas where it could. And so principally this took place um, in Syria, in Lebanon, in Bahrain, and, and in, in Yemen. Um, and it, to a certain degree, opened the door for a level of Iranian influence that didn't exist uh, prior to the Arab Spring uprisings. And it's one of the reasons I say that it, we, can, we can say that Iran won the last decade. Um, at least that's the way I see it. Okay. Now, how significant is religion to understanding contemporary Middle East politics? It's absolutely critical. Um, it, you could say that religion is the cultural glue of the Middle East. Um, if you don't understand the primacy of place of religion in this region, then you're fundamentally missing out on what drives people's identity, what drives people's way of seeing the world. 
Um, and so understanding the place of religion and, and it, and I think there sometimes is a tendency to oversimplify that to understanding it, just Islam. But the region is um, far more diverse than simply Sunni, hetero, uh, Sunni Orthodox Islam. Um, part, of, uh, part of what we've seen in the politics of the region in the last 10 years is this Sunni-Shi rivalry. And we've also seen a Sunni-Sunni rivalry over the last decade. We saw the Sunni world split between Qatar and Turkey on one side, supporting a Muslim Brotherhood uh, type of worldview, um, and Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and the UAE on the other side, who felt threatened by a Muslim Brotherhood uh, worldview. We've seen the Islamic State threaten Saudi Arabia, which views itself as the custodians um, or the guardians of the holiest sites of uh, Islam. And so understanding sort of the uh, intra-Muslim um, uh, rivalries and competitions within the region are critical for understanding what's driving politics in the region. So um, it's hard to overstate the importance of religion in the region socially, culturally, in terms of identity, and certainly politically. Now, in the program, do you discuss energy politics at all, meaning how oil and gas resources in the Gulf states influence Middle East politics today? Sure. I mean, from my perspective, it's hard to understand the whole uh, American push to normalize relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia without understanding energy politics. Um, as a result of the coronavirus pandemic and the opening up of reopening up of the world after the pandemic, um, the price of gas or, or oil worldwide um, was becoming a big issue for the United States and for U.S. politics uh, before the most recent congressional elections. And now we're in a, a U.S. election year for the presidency. Um, I, I think there was a sense uh, that um, from the Biden administration in particular that uh, the U.S. wanted uh, Saudi Arabia's help in managing the global um, oil markets in an election year. Uh, and I think the Saudis had certain requests that they wanted from the Americans. And I think that um, the proper way to understand the Israeli-Saudi normalization process is that it was principally driven by an American-Saudi desire to come to an understanding. So um, I, I think it's an exaggeration to say the road to Washington um, uh, lies through Jerusalem, but to a certain degree, um, I think the Saudis and the Americans understood if they wanted to get their deal done, a, a deal between America and the, and, the, and the Saudis, they needed to bring in the Israeli-Palestinian issue, uh, which the U.S. Congress wanted to see addressed. And of course, um, the Israeli-Palestinian issue meant that um, the Saudis had to deliver for the Palestinians, and the Saudis preferred to deal with the Palestinian Authority. And again, this led the, uh, perhaps led Hamas to feel like it it stood to be marginalized in an Israeli-Saudi normalization, and that perhaps was one of the drivers of the October 7th war. Now, I know you've spoken about the Abraham Accords, but can you tell us a little bit more about how important they have been um, to the Middle East? Sure. Um, the Abraham Accords, which were uh, agreements that normalized Israel's relations with, with first with the Bahrain and, and the United Arab Emirates in August, September of 2020, uh, and then led, uh, to, led to Morocco and Sudan trying uh, also uh, normalizing with Israel. In Sudan, there's been a civil war uh, that's erupted um, since the normalization agreement. So we can set Sudan aside. But um, so we're really talking about um, Morocco, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain. And you can even say Morocco doesn't see itself as part of the Abraham Accords. It sees its, its agreement with Israel as a renormalization of ties. So it's a bit different. But I think. Um, 
what it meant for Israel was an, it was an opportunity to begin to integrate into its neighborhood in a way that um, the peace treaties, as important as they are with Egypt and Jordan, hasn't really allowed Israel to, to, to integrate. The UAE saw and Bahrain saw the uh, Abraham Accords as opening up relationships with Israel, not just in the security sense, but also in the economic sense, in the um, cultural, social, what we call people-to-people -people sense. Um, and so it was an enormous chance for Israel to begin to better integrate into its neighborhood and to feel like it was being accepted in the Middle East. Um, and I think it's hard to overstate that. Um, and what's more is the Abraham Accords triggered a process of normalization that began to spread throughout the region, independent of Israel. So Turkey began to normalize its relationships across the region. Turkey had very poor ties with UAE and Saudi Arabia and, and renormalized its relationship with Israel uh, in, in between 2021 and 2022. And so um, you could say the Abraham Accords were almost contagious in terms of their effect. And, and from that perspective, enormously important for the region up until October 7th. Now, um, if we were to go back to October 6th, how would you describe Israel's relationship to the Middle East on that day? I think um, from an Israeli perspective in particular, there was a sense that um, Israel was becoming a, uh, a vital uh, partner in the community of the Middle East, um, vital in uh, the economic sense, vital in the security sense, vital in the social and cultural sense. Um, and so uh, on the eve of October 7th, particularly with the potential for Israeli-Saudi normalization, um, the feeling was that um, there was a chance to advance regional cooperation in a way that didn't exist before. Um, and, and I think that this has been, a, uh, for Israel, it, it represented a potential massive sea change in its relationships in the region. Um, now, people say, well, that, that all seems very naive in hindsight, right? That it, um, there, there was a, uh, an analyst of the region who wrote that it was even a mirage. Um, and, and I think uh, that's perhaps overstating things. Um, and the reason that argument's made is because uh, there were certain um, conflicts in the region um, that still continue to simmer, right? Uh, the civil wars that I alluded to earlier weren't really resolved. Um, the Israeli-Palestinian issues still existed. Um, but I think two things can be true at once, um, that I think that the region was moving towards greater regional cooperation and integration, including Israel, um, and that there were unresolved issues and there remain unresolved issues. Um, and so the question is, moving forward, um, can the October 7th war uh, um, lead to positive outcomes or will it lead to more instability and a return to the dynamics we saw pre-2020, which were a decade of conflict and instability? Um, and I think that's an open question, um, and a lot of it depends on how things evolve. Well, you kind of took my question there because I was going to ask you how you would say Israel's relationship to Middle Eastern countries have changed since October 7th, so getting back to the present. Sure. I, I think, look, the, the war is a terrible thing, um, and I think that uh, there's a social and cultural sense of solidarity throughout the Arab world with the Palestinian people and their national uh, cause. And so the war is creating a sense of um, uh, unrest in the region and instability because um, 
the Arab street, if you will, um, sympathizes with the Palestinians, would like to see uh, the war come to an end as quickly as possible, um, would like to see, uh, and tends to inherently sympathize with Palestinian suffering more than Israeli suffering. Um, and, and, and so I think that for Israel, this has sort of frozen its relationships in the region, its, its new and growing partnerships in the region. Um, and so the question is, if and when the war ends, um, how can those re relationships be restarted? Uh, can Israel, will Israel be able to pick up with its new partnerships in the region um, pre-October 7th uh, and continue them in the same way? Or will October 7th have affected those relationships in a way that things will need to be um, restarted in a fundamentally different way? And it's hard to know. Well, let's hope for the former. Mm -hmm. Now, Brandon, thank you very much for this interesting discussion. But before we go, I'd love to learn a little bit more about this summer program. Mm -hmm. So this is an international program, right? It's offered in English? Yes, it's, a, it's, it's offered to our international students. Um, the program's held in English. It's taught in English. All of the coursework uh, is in English. Um, obviously, uh, we'll, it will introduce students to um, a range of social, cultural uh, uh, texts and, and multimedia, if you will. Um, but we encourage students who are uh, interested in spending time in Israel, who want to uh, uh, study in Israel and get to know the Middle East from the inside out, um, to come and, uh, and engage with some of the issues we've discussed here. Um, and if they want to learn more, um, I would certainly encourage them to go to the TAU International website, um, generally, most of the information is there, and certainly if they have additional questions, they can reach out to the TAU International Program, and, and, and we're always eager to engage with uh, potential students. I can definitely attest that if you want to learn about this region, this is where you need to come. <laughs> okay, thank you again, Brendan, for taking the time to talk with me about regional politics in the Middle East and its relationship to the October 7th war. It's always fun talking to you, Maria. Thank you for the invitation to be here, and I look forward to seeing all those potential new students out there this summer.